I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hey, John, how's it going? Hi, John, I'm good. How are you? You know what? I'm doing well and keeping busy. Uh, we've been recording. This is, God, I don't even know when this show is supposed to air, but we are in the middle of August, and I don't even think this is airing till October. So our usual pleasantries, oh, it's hot. No, it hasn't rained very much. Yes, we're melting, but it's okay, because now we're talking about music theater. And so, <laughs> today... Oh, I I feel like I just turned the intro into meta. I like how are we gonna go forward from this? Like, I don't know how we're gonna like I just turned our intro into a meme and we're gonna stay with that. Okay, so today we are talking about the 1971 musical Two Gentlemen of Verona with music by Galt McDermott, lyrics by John Guar, book adapted by John Guar and Mel Shapiro based on the play of the same name by William Shakespeare. Two Gentlemen of Verona opened on December 1st, 1971 at the St. James Theater and closed on May 20th, 1973, after playing for 614 performances. The show was directed by Mel Shapiro, and the choreography was by Gene Erdman. The show was conducted by Tom Pearson. The original Broadway cast included Raul Julia as Proteus, Clifton Davis as Valentine, Janelle Allen as Sylvia, Diana Davila as Julia, Norman Matlock as the Duke of Milan, Frank O'Brien as Thurio, Alex Elias as Lucetta, Alvin Lum as Sir Eglamour. Two Gentlemen of Verona was nominated for nine Tony Awards and won two Best Musical and Best Book of a Musical. Good friends Proteus and Valentine tire of the rural life they lead in Verona. They long to experience life in the city of Milan. Valentine decides to just up and leave and heads off to Milan. In Milan, he falls instantly in love with Sylvia and becomes determined to win her hand. But her father, the Duke of Milan, has already promised her to the undesirable Thurio. Back in Verona, Proteus's dad, a nobleman, decides to send his son to the Duke of Milan's court. When he gets there, Proteus also becomes enamored with Sylvia, totally forgetting about his lover back in Verona, Julia. Reunited, Valentine shares his plans to elope with Sylvia with Proteus. Proteus turns on Valentine, sharing his plans with the Duke and leading to Valentine's banishment from the court. Back in Verona, Julia discusses with her maid, Lucetta, who she should fall in love with. They agree that Proteus is the right man for her, so Lucetta helps Julia disguise herself as a man so that she can safely travel to Milan and be reunited with Proteus. Upon her arrival at the Duke's court, Julia witnesses both Proteus and Thurio trying to woo Sylvia. While traveling to Mantua, Valentine is kidnapped by a group of likewise banished outlaws. They give Valentine a choice. Become their king or die. Valentine chooses to be king. In Milan, 
Julia, still disguised as a man, brings a ring, the ring that Proteus had given to her, to Sylvia, saying it is a gift from Proteus. Sylvia decides it's time to get away from all these crazy dudes and find Valentine. <laughs> she enlists the help of Sir Eglamour to escape. While the two travel through the woods on their escape, they are attacked by the outlaws and Sir Eglamour flees, abandoning Sylvia alone with the rapscallions. The Duke, Proteus, Thurio, and the disguised Julia form a search party to find Sylvia. They succeed in finding her and Proteus frees her from the outlaws. He then demands that Sylvia give him some sign of her favor as a reward for freeing her, but she refuses. Proteus then tries to assault Sylvia, but Valentine comes out of hiding and stops him. Proteus apologizes for his actions, and Valentine offers to give him Sylvia as a token of their friendship. Seeing all of this, Julia faints, revealing her true identity. Upon seeing Julia, Proteus realizes that he really does love Julia more than Sylvia and decides to marry her instead of Sylvia. Through the search party, the Duke has realized that Thurio is a thug and that Valentine is actually much nobler than Thurio. The Duke decides that Valentine and Sylvia should be married. Valentine asks the Duke for clemency for his band of outlaws. Valentine also proposes a double marriage for him and Sylvia and Proteus and Julia. Mutual happiness for all. Before we get into the episode, I just need to make one side comment. If anyone wrote shit like this today, they would go, I mean, she, like, I love Shakespeare. Don't get me wrong. I love Shakespeare. I, there is very little of his output that I'm like, meh. But Jesus Christ. These plots. Anyway, on with the episode. <laughs> yeah, I... Uh... <laughs> they're not great and the whole uh you know attempted assault and then just apologizing and it's suddenly all okay thing is also not great but i mean i have no defense for it i mean it's weird because it speaking specifically about two gentlemen of verona it almost rises to the concept of deus ex machina almost there's no kind of just hand of god here that just sets everything right but everything just kind of is right by the end like there's no rhyme or reason it's it's kind of i mean it reminds me almost like gilbert and sullivan in the mikado when they're talking about well you ordered him dead, and since your word is law, and, and since all of your laws are carried out, that means he must be dead, even though he's standing in front of you. And since we carried out your rule and he's dead, that means he's already dead and we don't have to kill him, and so therefore he's free. We kind of got this here. So Proteus tries to attack Sylvia, Valentine stops him. And, and then Valentine accepts Proteus's apology and says, oh, it's okay. Here's Sylvia, the person yeah. I just tried to, what? It, uh, uh, mm. And then, and then Julia, who, who at this point is hiding, is, has disguised themselves as a, as a man, faints. Gets the vapors. And, and, and then Proteus is like, oh, wait, there's that woman I, oh, wow, I guess I, 
I guess I do love her. So no, you know what? You keep the woman you're offering me unfairly. I'm going to go with the woman I came with, but tried to run away from. And now we're all happy. Yay, Mary. Like that, that, that's the end of the show. That's it. I mean, maybe I'm being a little glib about it, but factually that's the end of the show. Yeah, which is maybe not great, but if you can come to terms with that in your own personal life, there is some fun potential to be had in performing this piece. I mean, you know, we always approach everything from the musical angle, and musically speaking, this show isn't exactly, like, brilliant. It's not bad. I mean, it won Best Musical, uh, but it's... What it, what it does, and what I think is nice about this show, is that it creates the opportunity for good storytellers, both as actors and the folks who help to bring a production together, to have fun. Because it is really kind of open in terms of what you can do with it, and the requirements can be big and over the top and sort of full bore or they can also be very very minimal and it can still be compelling because as problematic as that ending and the the text is still Shakespeare and Shakespeare kind of knew what he was doing when it comes to writing stories I, I've heard that I've heard that he had some skill some people find his words interesting musically this show is I hate I hate this because I feel like at times I fall into this rut and it's become my easy out. But this is a show that exists for me. It's not bad in any shape or imagination at all. This is not a show that is bad. But there is nothing exceptionally memorable about this show to me. It's generally pleasant. It's generally enjoyable. But there is nothing musically about this show that makes me sit up and go, oh, did how how did they do that? Or oh, that was fantastic. It's it's good, it's solid. It works. Yeah, I, I think that's perfectly fair. You know, I, I have never done this show, but I've seen this show. I've seen the show once. And the only time I saw it, I was a very impressionable young lad. And I remember thinking that it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I don't remember going, wow, that was some of the best music I've ever heard in my life. But I remember going, yeah, that was fun. I had an enjoyable evening. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think, uh, you know, one of the things that you can do with this show is you can do one of our favorite things and have the band on stage. It is fundamentally kind of a rock band with some extra things here and there, though I have to say, I think the version I saw of this show may have just been a rock band. I don't know that they had a bunch of extra reads involved, um, but this show did its tryouts actually at the Delacorte Theater, which is the theater in Central Park that the public uses for Shakespeare in the Park, and that uh, theater does not have a pit. I double checked that fact. It sounds like maybe you could build a pit into the stage because it does have room for uh, like trap doors and those sort of situations, but it does not functionally have a pit. And though I couldn't find any pictures of the original production, I suspect that their band was either built into the scenery or hidden somewhere on stage or just fully visible on stage as it certainly was uh, in the production that I saw. 
but you know that we we just sort of have a soft spot for that here on the show. We do because I mean, you know, I remember when I was but a young lad starting out music directing, there was this big push in some of the theaters I was working in to always make sure the band was visible in some way. And ultimately it came down to, they're like, well, if we're spending this money, we want people to see what we're spending this money on, which is a very weird, if you think about it. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's very clinical. It's very cold feeling, but I mean, there is a grain of truth to it. If you're going to have a band, if you're going to have a live band, put them on stage if you have the ability to do so. Um, I've never understood. Another thing that has kind of stuck with me through through my career as a music director is so many people, when they can't see the band, will, will say, oh, wow, you guys were so fantastic. I thought it was a recording. It's like, that's not really the compliment you think yeah. it is yeah not great like i'm glad you thought it was really well put together i'm th- glad you thought it sounded great but yeah that's not it doesn't mean what you think it means to me so when you can have the band on stage people can't say oh wow i thought it was a recording it was so good and so when you have the opportunity that's why i that i like it it doesn't work all the time it doesn't work every time for a show like this i definitely could see how it would add a benefit to it it gives you opportunity to play interplay get, i mean just there's there's very little downside in two gentlemen of verona to not do it so the last thing i want to circle back to on this show is the tony awards that it won because it had some noteworthy competition for the tony awards uh, as we mentioned, it won the Best Musical Award and the Best Book of a Musical Award. And in both categories, a show that it beat was Sondheim's Follies, which is just kind of curious to me. And we've talked about Follies on the show, and we've been unabashed in our love of Follies. Yeah, I... I'm not sure. In in one of the one of the things Follies did beat this show on was best score. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that year, Follies did win best original score over Two Gentlemen of Verona and a little Andrew Lloyd Webber musical called Jesus Christ Superstar. So let let's be honest here. This was not a fluke thing. This was not a slouch thing. Seventy one was actually a pretty good year for musicals. And the fact that Two Gentlemen of Verona ended up pulling out Best Musical and Best Book, I think is a testament to a degree of this show's quality, if not flashiness or spectacularness. I I think it does kind of reference its solidity, but some of it confuses me. Part, I mean, I get the I get the Jesus Christ Superstar part of it because i am sure the tony voters in 1971 had no clue what the hell to do with that show score wise because it's a passion play but it's also heavy rock band it's to some people and even to some people today considered sacrilegious and you know we're not going to litigate that again we have already talked about that once and we are not going to litigate that out but i mean it it does fascinate me that Follies was not considered the best musical that year. And and it kind of makes me wonder, you know, what was it about the, the original 71 production of this show that kind of gave it the edge over a show of that quality? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. Neither of us was there. We don't have a time machine. I know no. that Follies has never been as well loved by the community at large as it is by folks like you and me. But also fair, yeah. It does. It does seem curious that it. I don't know. I mean, I'm so biased as a musician, but it feels like if you have the best original score, that should go a long, long way to being the best overall musical. And I get why they get credit for the book in Two Gentlemen of Verona, because it's not like it's Shakespeare verbatim. They did have to, you know, adjust to more contemporary times and all of these things and trim down for a musical and and all that kind of stuff that you have to do when you're taking texts from several hundred years and bringing them into the present. But it's also kind of like a Shakespeare book. It's a little bit cheating and i i think you know the book to follies is pretty good yeah like it's a compelling story i don't know it is curious it's noteworthy it's a fun little fact of another uh icon of music theater of sondheim falling short in a way that i'm sure he was annoyed to fall short i guess the last thing i want to say is d- did we do jesus christ superstar on this show um i may have no, I not not I may have. I have. It may have okay. been during the mystical season two where I did uh, a handful of solo episodes, which means we get to bring it back and I get to subject you to sitting through 45 minutes of Jesus Christ Superstar if we mm, ever need to. Mm, <laughs> don't look forward to that. So if you're curious to learn more about two gentlemen of Verona, today's musical du jour, then uh you can go listen to it. The original Broadway cast recording is available anywhere you find music. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.